Welcome to the Jesus Didn't Die for This Podcast with your hosts, Annie Cinco and Dean Ruiz. It's just two millennial women facetiously unpacking their generational, religious, and personal trauma. However, and wherever you enjoy your podcast, we hope you'll spend some time with us. Don't forget to like and subscribe. And now, it's time for the show. Hey everyone, this is Dean Ruiz, and you are listening to the newest episode of the podcast, Jesus Did Die For This. I am extremely excited to welcome my longtime friend, Erin. Erin uh, is currently studying psychology and lives in the Bay Area. So, and why don't you take a minute to introduce yourself to the audience, and you can you can also say how we know each other. Uh, so yeah, like Dean said, uh, my name is Erin. Uh, my pronouns are she, her. I guess the identity thing is I am, I consider myself a extroverted, loud, pansexual Korean American, also a transracial adoptee. Um, we were talking a little bit about this earlier, but uh, Dean and I know each other from homeschooling in New Jersey. We have known each other for, oh my God, <laughs> it's been, it's been like at least a decade or so, at I least. think. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, I think, I'm, 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 I've listened to some 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 of the episodes. I know that uh, Dean's talked a little bit about homeschooling, and so yeah, it's more or less been kind of like the same upbringing. Uh, lots of you know things to undo in terms of Christianity and colonialism and all that fun stuff. So you you said that uh, you you're homeschooled, and and so we had a very we had the same experience for some time because we were in the same homeschooling group um, for most of high school, which was over a decade ago dear god we didn't have a 50 we didn't have a reunion remember we were talking about like how we wanted to have what was it a, do they do 15 is it 10 or 15 year reunions that they do for high school i don't remember i want to say it's 15 i actually wasn't able to go to my public school reunion i think it, i want to say it's 15 yeah. i remember there was talks about it but again i don't talk to like especially now i don't talk to anyone in homeschooling besides you I so i have no idea yeah we um Erin and I realized that uh, some people are just better to cut out of your life. <laughs> Respectfully, <laughs> it uh, it's not a, it's not a vibe. I feel like Anne can speak to that because I feel like we've talked about how Anne hasn't really connected to people. <laughs> yeah, because you were homeschooled I, as well, right? I was homeschooled as well, and yeah. I completely, when I left, I left my family at eighteen, like moved out on my own. I completely cut everybody out for a while. And like, I still stayed Facebook friends with everybody, but after like Trump and COVID, I had to cut everybody out. And that included my immediate family because yeah. of how they were mm-hmm. still treating me and unwilling to reconcile the trauma mm-hmm. and the family issues that we would have to deal with to yeah. be able to get to a point where we could have a relationship that I would consider a good and stable relationship. Mm-hmm. So basically it was just too hard for me to keep putting myself into that situation. And I feel like that's um, really common for a lot of people that come from these backgrounds. Yes. Is that you yes. just, you grew up in such a box with all these people that were in your box. And then once you leave it, it's mm-hmm. really hard for you to go back to those people sometimes because, mm-hmm. yeah. Because uh, well, some people haven't grown, I would yeah, say. Some people yeah, are still in that same exact mentality. And you see, you're like, wow, you have not grown yeah. at all. You are still anti-science. 
Yeah, for us, Erin, I think there are certain people that like we thought they were starting to grow, like they were starting to grow and they were starting to change. And so we kept them around. And then it was like something happened, trademark, <laughs> exclamation point. And it was just sort of like, oh, no, you haven't changed. <laughs> oh, no, this is not good. And I feel like that makes I feel like those are probably the hardest experiences because it's just sort of like you were so close at least for me you know it's just like you were so close you like you were right there and um they just they just couldn't take the extra extra mm -hmm. leap step um but uh you 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 still talk with your brother right Aaron but other than that yeah so some stuff about my family I grew up again transracial adoptee for those who don't know are those who are so so there's some misconception especially on twitter people think transracial is like oh i identify as black or i identify as whatever it's not it's not that transracial is specifically an adoptee um term like term which is essentially you are a different uh, race or slash ethnicity than your parents and so i was adopted with my uh, brother and my younger sister who are all from different families, but we're all, you know, from Korea. And I have three older siblings that are my parents' kids. So it's a very big family. I know Dean came from a very large family as well. We bonded through that also um, growing up. But yeah, as of right now, I'm pretty open about this aspect. Like most people know this. I'm estranged from my family. A lot of the reasons are very similar to you, uh, where Trump and COVID definitely exacerbated some of those issues. Um, but yeah, most recently, uh, I stopped talking to my family also because my brother came out as trans and, you know, coming from sort of Christian community, very transphobic, very homophobic, every ism in the book. So they were out of all eight people in my family. I was the only one that was not only accepting, but affirming. And so that has been very hard for the both of us. Yeah. Um, before yeah. that. There was a domestic violence situation with my younger sister that also made me estranged to them because I didn't feel safe in my home. It was uh, a very hard time because I was going to NYU at the time. I was working two, three jobs. I was tr like a transfer student going from New Jersey to New York. And then I was also afraid for my life like <laughs> at yeah. home while taking full credits. Um, and so, it, again, yeah, it was just... It's been a lot of having to undo a lot of, like, family trauma, which, you know, I'm sure, um, you know, like, growing up in a homeschool community, Dean also knows that there's also that factor as well. How has your experience of being a transracial adoptee worked um, for, for, for towards your knowledge of, of psychology and towards your kind of um, your view of the psychological field? Something that's been frustrating for me as someone who is raised by white people, not within cultures, that it shows how far behind we are in terms of talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Like I remember being in, this wasn't a psychology course, it was the race ethnicity course at NYU. And we were talking a lot about, you know, like, like systemic issues, like this is all very important stuff, racism and stuff. But there is this kind of like, and I don't know how to describe it per se, but there definitely is kind of like this lost in translation aspect of being a transracial adoptee where it's like, oh, like is, is this kind of assumption that, oh, so you're, you, you're Asian. So you know about the Asian experience. It's like, nope, <laughs> I'm fraud. Or at least that's how it feels sometimes. Right. Like, um, 
I don't know. I talk about this a lot with, um, I have actually another transracial adoptee friend in the program. And it's kind of like this frustration with just the way that race and ethnicity is taught, taught where it's like, okay, but like, this isn't my experience. And not to say that everything has to be tailored to our experience, but we're still stuck in like, okay, like racism bad, you know, white people need to dismantle stuff. And like, that's kind of the end of the discussion. So I, I know that for me, it's been a lot of frustration with, um, yeah, I guess just like not feeling like I'm in, I can relate to any discussions. I think mm-hmm. this is something that I've talked a lot with biracial people actually, um, where it's like, you don't feel, it's like the very stereotypical, like don't feel Asian enough for the Asians, not feel white enough for the white people. And it's kind of this very um, biracial and like transracial adoptee experience mm-hmm. that I've seen in general. It, it reminds me of the book I just read, by, so I'm plugging, we'll tag the author. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> Um, it just reminds me of the book I read called um, Peach Blossom Spring by Melissa Fu. And it um, she's actually a second generation immigrant. And so it's like, or no, because her dad was born outside of the U.S. and she was born in the U.S. So that means she's a first generation. Is that first generation? You said she, her parents came here? Yeah, her parents came here. Yeah, then she's second. Then she's second. So it was like the second generation immigrant experience. And it's like 100% what you just said. It was like, mm-hmm. and specifically because it was um, based off of, uh, pe- uh, it was based off of her personal family's experience of being refugees from the war. And so it was just sort of like, I I know what I look like but I literally don't know anything about what that means and like what that does to like impact how I live my life. And it was like amazing in the sense where I was like, I can't believe we as a human people are capable of like locking out an entire part of us. And then also it was just like, wow, I relate to this even as like a third generation, fourth generation kind of person where it was just like, yeah, I don't know. That 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 was very um interesting. But do you think like when it comes specifically to like adoption and psychology, do you feel like there is a lot of untapped potential there? There's definitely not a lot of research on it. My friend actually, when she starts making uh papers and stuff, I'll definitely plug her, but she uh, my friend Allie is a Chinese adoptee and we've bonded a lot with um being Asian adoptees and she wants to specifically do research with adoptees and a lot of that um, research is wants to focus more on the adoptee experience because the problem that we have not even just with adoptees and psychology but with adoptee like ex- stories as a whole is that so much of it is focused on gratefulness on on gratefulness like that's expected from adoptees like oh like the happy experiences um or it's focused on the parents themselves. And more often than not, it's based on the parents' experiences and not the actual adoptees. And you're starting to see a little bit more of it now, like the the, the, the uglier sides of adoption, right? Because I think that that was something that I had to come to terms with was that it's okay for me to feel angry or ashamed or guilty or sad about my experience because I think that there is this expect- this very strong expectation that you were chosen. So like you have to feel grateful. You have to be happy. You have to feel a certain way. Like I remember as a kid, um, you know, I, I definitely had like some really like 
you know, big depressive symptoms, like as early as 10, I remember being uh, pretty suicidal. And I think a lot of that was because of a lot of um, adoptee trauma and just being like, I don't feel like I belong anywhere. And I remember telling my parents this. And I remember my grandmother, my mother in particular, were like, oh, that's a third world country. You don't want to live there. You should be grateful to live here. Which, first of all, if anyone knows anything about South Korea, not a third world country. If anything, it's far more advanced than the U.S., especially in terms of technology. And then second, to just kind of have this very dismissive um, reaction and was like, oh, I shouldn't be feeling this way. Yeah. You know, and that took a very long time to kind of do a lot of self-soothing, do a lot of self-reflection. Like, no, like I, it's very, like, it makes a lot of sense for me to feel this way, mm-hmm. being taken from my, my my language, my my culture, you know, things like that. Um so I'm hoping there's more research um, and stories that are told from adoptees that have not had good experiences. Mm-hmm. I more of that. Question to kind of build off of that is like, do you think there's like a questionable ethics to the idea that like someone can just adopt, tra- uh, like have someone can have a transracial adoption and they're not obligated to like help their child with their identity? Because I feel like it's a little bit different where it's like, how do, how do I say this? Uh, it's sort of like, um, like my mom and dad, like were able to have a kid and fuck it up. No one questioned anything, but I still like, I didn't have like that extra level of like identity. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I, I just, the majority of people that I know who are adopted is within Christianity. And so I'm just like constantly poking that bear because we've talked it's white saviorism yeah you know it's this ability because that's that's what's interesting right is that there are there are domestic adoptions but christians choose not to do that it's like this weird and and again this is this is just kind of like my analysis of it as as i've kind of grown up i think a lot of it seems almost like missionary work almost like oh like there's this poor child from africa and like they're not like you know what i mean i think that it's one thing to have, because I, I have that, right, where I've thought a lot about adopting myself. And I think it, that, you know, there there can be this good place of, like, I do want a child to have a better life. But I think, especially in Christianity, there is so much of, like, racism, and again, that white saviorism that seeped into it, where it's like, I need to save this child from this bad country. And I think that's where, you, that, one of the reasons why you see a lot of that in Christian circles. Because Christianity and white nationalism go hand in hand. Hey, it's all connected. <laughs> it's a perfect circle. <laughs> you talked about, I guess this does kind of build, but um, how does being adoptee affect your view of modern Christianity? I guess in that regard, with the white saviorism, is there anything more you want to build on that based on your answers in the document, or did that cover it? Um. Yeah, I think it's just kind of like very similar where, again, it, it there is this kind of like, I think especially because of, uh, so those of you that may not know, especially with Asian adoptions, like Chinese and Korean in particular, uh, 99% of them, I would argue, come from Holt International. And Holt International is one of the biggest, especially in Korea, one of the biggest adoption agencies like in the whole country. And they are specifically a Christian um, adoption agency. And so they kind of took off during the 1950s during the Korean War where you had a lot of misplaced children and 
that's why you see a lot of adoptees that are like in their 50s. You see a lot of Korean adoptees in the, like in the 90s as well. Like there's my age group, there's a lot of Korean adoptees. And again, there is this huge, I would love to see research on this. I'm hoping my friend does it at some point, but there is this like huge connection between adoption and specific, specifically international adoption and Christianity. And again, I think just going back to what I said before, I think a lot of that is rooted in this kind of like, um, why saviorism where it's like you have to kind of like save the child um from this bad country um at least that's where i feel like that's a lot of the trends there it's funny it kind of reminds me of like abortion where it's like you have to think about the child until it's born and then we don't give a shit and it's like we have to save this child from this country instead of i don't know maybe helping this country be able to support their people the abortion thing is also wild as an adoptee because i remember because again, you're, you're indoctrinated into it. So like, I remember trying to use myself as an argument for pro-life where it's like, oh, but like, I wouldn't be here if it was for abortion. And it's just like, nah, fam, like you just gotta let people like make their own decisions with their own body, you know? And that was like a huge thing I had to do as well as that like adoptees. And it gets so exhausting because we are always brought into specifically Christians being like, but what about like adopting the kids? I'm like, are, like okay, but you're not doing that for domestic, you're doing that for international. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. why don't you adopt within your own country? It's very interesting that you're choosing that. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Only one of my aunt's 10 kids that she adopted were domestic. Yeah. And it's like, you have to wonder, like, why? Why? <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I know for, I heard a lot of the argument of like, oh, the the system is so flawed here and it's so expensive. And I'm like, so you're telling me it's easier to like go kidnap a kid overseas than to like adopt a kid down the street maybe maybe there's a little bit more than just like time and money here maybe it's like a I feel like it's a status thing because I I feel like whenever people like in the Christian church whenever someone has a kid and this is adopted and they bring the adoptee baby it's like a fucking party it's like Mm -hmm. oh my god you know you like shoot up the social hierarchy ladder well because it's seen as like an innately like i don't know i think i think you're just like when you think of someone who adopts immediately you're like this person is like the like an angel this person like the best person so benevolent you know yeah yeah. and and what people don't realize is like but are are, you know are are, is the child still getting like the, the cultural discussions or you know mm-hmm. something that happens a lot mm-hmm. in adoptee spaces especially as a transracial adoptee is um the aspect of colorblindness which i think a lot of people may know but like colorblindness for those who don't is essentially um a very common especially like my age group of adoptees where it's like you have a child who's of a different race or ethnicity as you and you're like oh well that doesn't matter because i love you like i don't see color which Again, I think come may come from like a good place, but ultimately, it's so damaging because the world doesn't work that way. No, <laughs> you know, it's just a not. It's it just it's a very naive um, outlook on life to be like no one's going to see your your color. Yeah, you know, because I have plenty of stories of relatives. I had a very racist uncle who used to like slant his eyes at us, and and you know that's something that you know, I was going to carry for the rest of my life. You know what I mean? Like, uh, I remember having like a, a red color shirt and my mom was like tipsy and she's like, Oh, that looks so Asian on you. Like clearly you see color, 
you know, just when it's uh, convenient for you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's, again, a very nuanced, I think, adoptee experience as well. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about cultural appropriation in transracial adoption? Because I think that's something I've noticed a lot in my former peer group of adoptees is that there were some families that tried to do the traditions and like they tried to keep some of those things together. But obviously, you know, like you're never going to give the kid the same experience. And they were doing that within their community. They weren't trying to plug the child in with like the Asian American community in our town or like, you know, the other communities in our town. I think early on, actually, ironically, that was where my mom may have actually done something right. Because, um, we had, thankfully, we had um, some Korean uh, family friends that kind of showed us the ropes in terms of like what to buy at the, you know, H Mart and, you know, what, you know, I remember going to like Korean church and, and trying to learn Korean, even though the guy that was teaching me just did not care about teaching us. So th- there was some attempts there made, but again, there wasn't any you know, the, the positives were always, like, easy, right? Like, oh, like, this is so cute. This is, like, the the Korean, you know, like, the little Korean stuff. Like, you know, this is your little hanbok that you came with. Like, that stuff was easy. I think what made it difficult for my family, my experience, was, like, the negative aspects of it, where it's like, okay, what do I do when someone says something racist to me? Are we not going to discuss that? Which, more often than not, was not. So it was a very, like, having to navigate a lot of, you know, microaggressions or just straight up you know, racist, um, you know, instances like alone. And that was something that I think that um, was probably more of an issue than cultural appropriation. I think thankfully we had people growing up that kind of helped us learn about Korean culture. That's Mm -hmm. awesome. Yeah. Yeah. At least have that. To have that actual, like, um, I don't want to say authentic. I feel like that's the wrong word, but to have like a, um, a tangible connection to your um to, to your culture and to your background and to have that community like you know like Anne said I I definitely resonate with what you said when I've, I've definitely seen people be like okay we're all gonna dress up and like such and such is you know traditional thing but like we're not going to associate with you know we're not going to go to festivals we're not going to like go to seminars we're not going to like actively seek out we're just going to do this sort of like performative sort of um what is it it's performative cultural awareness and I think that can definitely come across in some aspects as like at what point are you just sort of like appropriating your child's actual like identity to kind of show how um cultured you are or to show how like knowledgeable you are I feel like that's something I've seen as well just people being like yeah we went we went all the way and ordered ordered these things from this you know from this country totally ignoring you know like child labor laws totally ignoring the fact that like you you take you, you take it away and you do that whole white savior Christian missionary thing where it's like, yeah, you'll we'll let you wear this for Christmas, but like we're not going to do anything that isn't about like white Jesus for holidays. Yeah, I definitely feel like like we definitely did some cultural things growing up, but it was honestly like just the earlier years. And part of me regrets not taking her up on this, but I actually had a neighbor who was Korean, 
And something I've learned, um, I just made a Korean friend recently in the Bay Area because it's a very, you know, um, there's uh, lots of diversity here in the Bay, especially like Asians. And something I've learned from him and just like this neighbor I used to have is that Koreans, um, we are very oppressed people. And a lot of people don't realize that there was a lot of um, Japanese occupation for a really long time. Um, like the fact that we're even a country is still like phenomenal. So we're when I think of Koreans, I think of resilience. And so there is this very like, and I, I felt it too. Like I, I went to Seoul by myself a few years ago. And there is this kind of like protecting your own kind of thing, even if they don't know you. And that's something that I definitely feel has made me feel like very like accepted. Um, so with this one neighbor, I remember I was really young. I was I must have been like seven or eight or something. I was very young. And I heard I told her I was adopted. And I will never forget that she looked me in the eye. She was like the getting teary. And like I remember like it, it, it deeply impacted me. I was like, I don't know why she's upset and crying. And she was just like if you ever want connection with your, with your roots, like you can come to my house, you can do all these traditions with us. Da, da, da. And as an adult now, like it's a very emotional thing for me. I'm like, wow, like they, there is this kind of like you, you've lost like this huge cultural part of us. And like, I mourn that for you. And that's something this friend has actually reflected as well, where I told him he was adopted. I was adopted and like all these things. And he's like, that's so sad to me that you weren't able to, kind of share with our culture and he was he was a game theory too and so again it's kind of like this common theme i've seen specifically with koreans where it's like we are very proud people because of like all the things we've gone through and i was like oh. you know having that kind of repeated um i don't know reaction like you've lost so much and i mm-hmm. i i feel that for you mm-hmm. just very powerful do you feel like your trip to seoul kind of helped you reclaim a little bit more of your identity in some ways, that was a very, that was such an emotional experience because that was something I really wish I had done with someone else looking back, mm-hmm. um, especially because a lot of the, the fun things I did, because it's a very collectivist, this collectivistic country. So most of the things I was doing, people were like, why is she by herself? Um, so I, I wish I had had someone that could have gone with me, but it was a very cathartic moment because I remember saying, you know, I went to the whole, like, in Seoul and... I didn't get the answer I wanted, right? Because I have had a longing since I was a child to have that connection with my mother again, especially because of the lack of connection I have with my own. Um, and, you know, especially, you know, as a kid and, um, or at that time, because this was in college, I don't know, after college. And I didn't get the answer I wanted. I never heard back from her. I wrote a letter and things like that. They sent telegrams, apparently. People still send telegrams. They're like, yeah, this, so they sent a telegram that you want to contact. And they're supposed to contact the agency. At least that's how it is with closed adoptions, which is most international adoptions, which is where the birth parents don't have any personal information about you and you can't share that. Um, so, yeah, that was I think I went for like a week and it was it was very hard because I was like, I can't relate to these people. I don't have the language. Um, I remember one time like the first few days like i wore makeup like this and people were like looking at me weird and i had um, my airbnb host was very lovely she was i i, call, I called her unni which is like older sister she was like showing me around very sweet woman and she's like yeah it's because like you wear your makeup very western so i started wearing it more subtly and all of a sudden like no one looked at me anymore mm-hmm. and that was such a nice experience to be like wow i just like blend in like i don't have to worry about um standing out you know especially coming from like a very uh, white area i was like wow like people look like me that's wild you know, i feel so that, that was, yes. <laughs> it's like look at me i just blend into a crowd 
a concept, an idea. I'm, I mean, I, that's how it even feels at the base sometimes too. I'm yeah, like, oh, there's so many Asian people. Well, that's how I feel when I, whenever I would go back to, um, when I'd go back home to the East Coast, but then also down, down in Florida where my mom lives now. It's just sort of like, oh, look at me, I just blended. Whereas when I come back to the Midwest, it's like, oh, girl, where do you go tanning? It's like <laughs> genetics. Is there anything you want to promote about? Um, your professional journey, what you're doing, any papers, any things. I don't know how that works. God, I wish. No, <laughs> I haven't. I, I do have papers. Um, it's under my my full legal name, so <laughs> you will find them. Uh, but uh, my Instagram is at Kim Chiaric. It's on private, but you can try to send requests. Say you know, Dean or Ann or something. Maybe I'll add you. Um, I do. We haven't gotten started on it, but I also am trying to start a podcast with a friend of mine. Uh, we don't have a name yet. I've been trying to nag her about it. She's she's also very busy, but we want to start a podcast about uh, gaming and um, mental health because there are a lot of video games out there that do explore mental health, and we're both really huge nerdy gamers, and so that's something that we want to explore. So look out for that. Probably be um, posting about that on my Instagram. If, if you want to plug your gaming stuff go go off we don't, this. Man, we don't even have a name yet i'm no, really I mean, annoyed because like i want to have like brand your name. stuff because i didn't are you still streaming i yeah no i also I, oh yeah fun fact so i used to stream on twitch i'm on a hiatus right now i would like to get back to it if you would like to add me to at baben O'Haze, b-a-b-e-n-o-h-a-z-e i will stream at some point because i want to start doing streaming again it's just I was like I'm too busy right now, but I would love to get back to it. Doing, I, I miss gaming quite a bunch, bit. Doing a bunch of stuff. We'll edit yeah, it back always. in when you have your name. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll message her me. Be like, please, <laughs> need it. Well, thank you so much for listening, everyone. Aaron, thank you so much for being our guest. We had a wonderful time talking to you this week, and we learned so much from you. Thank you for sharing your story with us. And if you would like to get in contact with any of us about what we said, you can send us a Gmail at jddftpodcast at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Instagram at jddftpodcast. And if you want to hear the rest of this episode, it'll be on our Patreon. So go ahead and check out our different subscription statuses. We have something for everyone. So feel free to join us over there. We love you all. See you in a couple weeks. Bye. This has been the Jesus Didn't Die for this podcast with Andy Cinco and Dean Ruiz. We appreciate you taking the time to listen, however and wherever you may enjoy your podcast. We'll see you next time.